Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello. Welcome back from your weekend. Uh, welcome to The Scramble. Uh, in the middle part of The Scramble today, we are going to look at presidential polling numbers, drill down a little bit on them, uh, and uh, look at the so-called enthusiasm gap, although I actually think the enthusiasm gap is kind of wrongly positioned. Anyway, we'll come to that. And then at the end, because we like to surprise you, it's International Moth Week. Probably haven't even done your shopping yet for that, but it's International Moth Week. And moths, like a lot of animals, are more beautiful, more plentiful, and more important to the ecosystem than you perhaps had supposed. So all of that is to come, but every Monday we really do try to begin uh, with some kind of conversation uh, about the global pandemic uh, and particularly how it manifests here. Uh, And today uh, we are going to put Canadian eyes on the situation, specifically with uh, Maria Sundaram, an infectious disease epidemiologist, uh, postdoc fellow uh, at ICSS, ICES, excuse me, in Toronto, and a regular contributor to BBC OS. Uh, And so I'll just begin by saying, you might have seen a column that I wrote for Hearst Newspapers this past weekend, my column, uh, in which I talked about you know, there was a sort of a time when at a congressional briefing that also included cabinet officers, officers, President Trump used a very unpleasant term for other countries. It was a term, the second syllable of which was whole. And, you know, he's kind of referring to hot pestilential countries with unstable, mentally unstable leaders and populations going begging for public services. And now, of course, we are one, basically. We're all of those things. We're hot. We're pestilential. Uh, we have a mentally unstable leader and a lot of very important public service, uh, particularly public health services, are going begging. So, um, and, and Maria Sundaram, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Uh, and perhaps the uh, the best commentary that we could make on the situation vis-a-vis our two countries is the fact that the Toronto Blue Jays, although they are going to begin their baseball season, will not be allowed to come back into Canada for home games because they are visiting, I think, such a fundamentally unsafe country in the United States. Uh, that must be an odd fe- It's an odd feeling for us to know how unsafe we are. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I won't sort of presume to comment on um, the sort of like cultural dynamics between Canada and the United States. I'm, I'm an epidemiologist, so mm-hmm. not an anthropologist um, or a political scientist. But I will say that, yeah, it is, it's really hard. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dual citizen of the U.S. and of Canada, um, and I've obviously lived in both places. It's really hard to watch uh, a pandemic unfold uh, the way it has in the U.S. Um, because we know that uh, all of these cases and all of these deaths are preventable. Right. Uh, um, And when we say all of these deaths, uh, it's also important to note the level uh, of denial that's going on right now. Uh, Over the weekend, President Trump spoke with Chris Wallace of Fox News. Here's how part of that went. When you talk about mortality rates, I think it's the opposite. I think we have one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. Well, we're going to take a look. We had 900 deaths on a single day. We will take a look. This week. Ready? I, you you can check it out. Please get me the mortality rate. Yeah. Kaylee's right here. 
I heard we had one of the lowest, maybe the lowest mortality rate anywhere in the world. You have the numbers, please? Because I heard we had the best mortality rate. Number one low mortality rate. No, there is nothing on those charts that suggested a number one low mortality rate. But but what the whole exchange does suggest to me, uh, and and uh, but I want to hear the epidemiologists on this, is is so much confusion in messaging. Is this a serious situation or isn't it? Do we have a national strategy or don't we? Is that national strategy working or does it need to change? It seems to me that these are all much more open questions, Maria, than they really ought to be in such a serious situation. Yeah, we know from previous um, experience with other outbreaks, pandemics and epidemics, um, that we um, need to have a really clear and consistent communication strategy and that we really need to have a very consistent and um, really highly structured, coordinated response. And unfortunately, a lot of the opportunities to have those two things have been missed so far. So I'm sitting here in Connecticut, which is you know it's um, a state that did successfully bend down its infection curve. Cases are low, deaths are lo- are truly low, not imagined, not not by active imagination low. But you know, as this disease begins to cook up around the rest of the country, um, it is apparent. You know, there's sort of a I don't know why they use this particular analogy, but one thing I, I do hear scientists talk about, they say, you know, you can you can declare that one end of the public swimming pool is a no P zone, but that won't really keep the P down there. The P is going to go where it's going to go. And I was listening to Daniel Griffin, uh, a, a clinician in the New York, um, New Jersey area, who does regular updates on this week in virology this week. And he's starting to see in the New York, New Jersey area, which also was very successful in suppressing the disease. He's starting to see some of the kinds of cases that he was seeing before. And and I think, you know, it's probably going to be hard to be some kind of epidemiological Switzerland where you don't get touched by simply something simply because you live in, in a different state. Yeah. So we epidemiologists like myself been saying kind of since the beginning of this, um, what we need in order to open back up safely are testing contact tracing and a clear coordinated strategy for how we're going to sort of move forward. Um, A lot of states and and local public health authorities are kind of thinking about um, these interventions or these uh, control mechanisms as like, not necessarily an on off switch, but like a dial. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of like imagine that we're turning the volume up on like, for example, shelter in place policies or mask policies, or we might be able to turn it down. For example, if we, we think that if we feel very confident, as you said, that there are um, very few numbers of cases or very low community transmission. Now, in a lot of these places, I I don't think that we have those tools quite in place yet. For example, um, in many areas, we don't have sort of like very intensive uh, contact tracing to be able to be really confident about, you know, saying, hey, we know exactly where every case is. We know where all of those contacts for that case are. We just don't have um, that infrastructure in place. Well, I think also, you know, one thing that has sort of sunk in with me a little bit over the last week or so is if you don't have rapid turnaround testing, contact tracing is not going to work particularly effectively. So in other words, if somebody calls me up and says, well, you were in contact with such such a person uh, who has tested positive 
for coronavirus and there was like a one week window in between the time the person was like these five to seven day windows between the time the person (laughs) is tested and the time the positive result comes back well i mean in a way you've lost a lot of your opportunity to to do something about this and if i got infected chances i'm chances are after five to seven days i'm shedding virus it may be too late to stop me yeah, so I think one of the one of the real challenges I I, um, I think you you said it very eloquently uh, of contact tracing is that ideally we find out who's a case as quickly as possible and because again of um, of challenges with infrastructure and challenges with the resources that are needed uh, people aren't getting their test results uh, back right away in some cases and that that really sort of is a is a challenge to this process and another you know challenge is that you might forget who you were in contact with over the course of a week. I personally like have a hard time remembering even like who I came in contact with like two days ago. Um, And so I I think if you're not really carefully thinking about that, that can also be like an added challenge there. Um, One of the things that would probably be good to stop talking about, but I don't think we've quite done it is the concept of herd immunity. Um, It it does seem that there are places where you you can still hear people sometimes in even leadership position talk about, well, maybe we're going to get to that. And because there's, of course, inadequate testing, uh, they can sort of say that and and there's no way to contradict them. But it, it does seem as though absent a vaccine, I mean, New York City, where they had a very high concentration of infection and have done zero prevalence studies, it's like nineteen to twenty three percent, you know, which is probably the highest percentage in the country, and is nowhere near the what sixty seven percent or so you'd be looking at as a minimum threshold. Right. I think there's a couple of different things I think that are really important to remember when we're thinking about this idea of herd immunity. Um, one of them is that um, we, you know, we're kind of looking at COVID-19 as though it is, um, for example, a respiratory virus like influenza. We're looking at that sort of in a similar epidemiological context. That means, you know, it can cause this kind of more severe respiratory illness and other sort of systemic illnesses. And we know for flu, if you have that illness, we generally expect your antibodies to be like really long lasting and generally pretty protective over a longer period of time. And so um, we thought, hey, maybe that could be happening for COVID-19. However, um, we know for other seasonal coronaviruses, the ones you and I normally get that cause kind of common cold stuff during the winter, we know that we can be reinfected with those. And so it's actually very challenging for us to know if we even have like a very uh, robust, very serious COVID-19 infection, is that immunity going to last? Um, it's also a challenge to know uh, with seroprevalence studies, it's a really a challenge to know, are we looking at antibodies from a previous seasonal coronavirus infection? Or are we looking at antibodies from COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, specifically? Um, and we also don't know how long those antibodies might last, right? So we, we, could look, um, we could look, for example, this month and find that I have antibodies against uh, SARS-CoV-2, and then we could look next month and find that I actually don't have those antibodies anymore. And so when we're thinking about herd immunity, um, you know, we don't actually know, for example, let's say that 80% of the people in New York, God forbid, were to get COVID-19. We still don't know if that's enough for herd immunity because we don't know how long that immunity might last if, if you know, any period of time whatsoever. The other really important thing I think to think about that's maybe important than any other thing that I've mentioned so far is that if this were to actually happen, it would absolutely break 
our systems. It would break mm. our public health system. It would also break, of course, our hospital system. And so it's absolutely not a thing that we want to have. Um, this rolls, I think, fairly easily into the conversation about vaccines. I mean, every day does seem to produce slightly more encouraging information about development of vaccines. I mean, it often feels a little bit like a, a horse race at Churchill Downs or something. But if so, AstraZeneca and Oxford seem to maybe have broken out into the lead by a nose or so with Moderna coming up on the rail and that kind of stuff. But um how uh, this is something I genuinely don't understand. Everything that we just said now about sort of quote unquote naturally acquired antibodies, uh, naturally acquired immunity, which you either have or you don't, or you don't know how long you have it, you don't know how robust it is, you don't even know whether it came from this particular disease. Some of those question marks, I presumably would be eliminated at the end of trials. Like if there were a successful vaccine that was ready to go to market, we would know a lot more, I would assume, uh, about the robustness of its immunity effect. Yeah, there's a couple of different things at play there. And one of them is that in clinical trials, um, the environment, sort of the, the exposure environment for people who are participating in clinical trials is much more sort of tightly controlled than sort of just you and I walking around, you know, maybe we happen to get exposed to COVID-19 uh, or not. And so um, when, when clinical trials are done, uh, there's a very specific plan in place, even before any of the, the trial starts, where um, the trial investigators set down a series of rules and they say, okay, so we're going to take blood before um, and after we give these people vaccines, and here's how we're going to measure their antibodies, and we're going to measure exactly how well those antibodies work specifically against COVID-19, rather than sort of just looking to see if they're there. Um, and so there are all these sort of like very well-defined outcomes um, that you can have in a clinical trial that's a lot harder to sort of get if you're just trying to find person uh, people in a city at one point in time, and you're doing kind of less of an analysis um, of their antibodies because you've got thousands and thousands of people. You know, I don't think uh, the world has ever watched this process as carefully as it will watch it this time. But I find myself also wondering about the kind of challenge phase uh, of these vaccine studies where the volunteers are, 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 if they're going to be challenged, in other words, intentionally exposed uh, to the disease to see to test the effectiveness of the vaccine. This is a very weird and unpredictable vaccine. Its symptom presentation seems to vary radically from patient to patient. It's got these downstream uh, effects. Uh, of the uh, of an overactive immune response. In, in some cases, uh, people are also left sometimes with substantial long-term disabilities, you know, former athletes who need to rest uh, midway through walking up a flight of stairs two or three months after the disease. I mean, there's some real questions in my mind about how you, how you do challenges with a disease that the clinical community isn't 100% sure how to treat from case to case. Yeah, that's a really, I think you're bringing up a really good question of sort of ethics and the, the ethics of doing clinical trials uh, for vaccines. So um, in, uh, in it's kind of maybe worth noting that there's more than 100 different uh, COVID-19 vaccines currently in development. And some of those will, uh, many of the trials that um, are in development right now uh, will not include sort of a challenge aspect. Um, and again, sort of you, you mentioned challenge, challenge being sort of the idea that when you're testing a vaccine, you may sort of choose to expose uh, a trial participant 
on purpose to, uh, to a pathogen that the vaccine is supposed to protect them against. Um, usually, uh, if it's possible, that pathogen is like an attenuated version. Um, and sometimes those are done um, because uh, the disease itself is so rare that it's not, uh, we wouldn't expect that person to get exposed in real life. Um, that's actually not the case for COVID-19, at least not in the U.S. And so we, we would expect that a lot of the people who are um, in these clinical trials will then sort of at some point get exposed uh, in real life. Um, so, so for many of these, uh, a challenge study will not actually be necessary. But I think it's really important to note as well that um, all of these vaccines, what they're trying to do is prevent uh, all of those sort of long-term serious uh, sequelae or, or sort of serious outcomes um, from happening in the first place. So you mentioned kind of, um, you know, feeling very fatigued and tired, short of breath, um, you know, for longer, longer periods of time. That's certainly something that we've seen in COVID, some people who have had COVID-19 infection. But um, with a safe and effective vaccine, we could avoid all of that altogether, which would be really great. Yes, that would. Um, another problem that we face here, I don't know how things are in Canada in this regard, but uh, one problem that we face here anyway is um, we had prior to COVID a certain population of people who would not volitionally take vaccines for things like measles. And I think it's gotten worse. And part of the reason it's gotten worse is nomenclature, uh, terms like Project Warp Sp or Operation Warp Speed, or even a term like Fast Track, you know, are, are the kinds of things that might make someone previously grudgingly willing to get vaccinated and now <laughs> yeah. super, superficious, now suspicious in, in a brand new way. And, and some of the polling on this indicates there might be a real problem getting you know, even the sort of minimum necessary level of compliance once there was a successful vaccine. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I um, before before January of this year, uh, my, most of my work was on other vaccine preventable infectious diseases, including influenza, um, which is a vaccine that people sort of ideally get every year, but many people are hesitant to get it. And what I've found in my work is that um, there are a lot of different reasons why people are hesitant to get vaccines. Maybe they think they don't work. Maybe they think they're actively dangerous. Maybe they think, you know, I don't care if they work or not. I just personally don't think that anyone has a right to tell me that I should or shouldn't get it. Um, so there's a lot of different sort of like perspectives on why people don't get vaccinated. And I agree with you that um, calling this sort of Operation Warp Speed isn't necessarily the most helpful for people who are concerned about safety uh, in this particular vaccine. Um, and I, I also think that maybe not, has, not enough has been done to reach out to people who are concerned and who are sort of initially hesitant uh, to get this vaccine. We really need to address that because uh, a vaccine is going to be a, a really important tool in the toolbox of our pandemic response. Um, but, uh, yeah. to, to those people, I might say, so we have these kind of phases of uh, clinical trials. We've got preclinical studies, then we've got phase one studies. So the Moderna um, reports are just from uh, their initial phase one uh, trial. We have phase two and phase three. Um, at each of those steps, safety is assessed. Then the FDA considers licensure. If they agree that the safety and effectiveness of that vaccine is really good, then they license it. But then after that, we have a phase four study where we continue to assess safety. And none of those steps are being skipped um, in, in this particular vaccine development landscape. So 
there's definitely the influx of money and the influx of um, sort of public interest is increasing the speed at which some of these things happen, but no steps are being skipped in terms of finding out if these vaccines are safe for people. Right. I'm so glad that you said it and said it uh, so clearly. Um, But, you know, I spend a certain amount of time just kind of lurking on, uh, well, some of the kind of libertarian uh, Facebook pages and stuff, uh, people who object to almost any kind of government intervention into this. And when they start talking about vaccines, I mean, it really is, their level of paranoia about it is very high. They see it um, largely as some kind of money-making collaboration between the government and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and, And I wonder, I just wonder what kind of public information campaign could be mounted. I think you could bring over in the way that you just stated it so clearly, you could bring over a certain group of kind of mildly skeptical people. But, you know, there's a kind of hardened distrust that, you know, is going to be hard to budge, even with explanations like the one you just gave. (laughs) Well, um, in the Sundrum House, we have a saying, uh, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Mm Um, And so I think, you know, there may be some people out there who are just really, they've made up their mind, they don't want to hear any more about it. And, you know, those, those people are maybe not the best people to talk to, um, because they really don't want to be talked to. Um, But I I think, you know, in other cases where people are are wondering or questioning, or maybe they're simply sort of like, they they have um, a mistaken thought, but they're willing to hear other thoughts. um, I think it's really important to take an approach of empathy. Uh, to communication with with people who may be even a little bit open. I, I think in my personal experience, it's been the case that telling someone that they're wrong is a really great way for them to sort of just stop listening to you. Um, and that's pretty much all that that accomplishes, unfortunately, I, in my experience. So um, my goal is really to take an approach of empathy to people who are uh, questioning, who who are hesitant, but sort of just want to learn more. I think that that is maybe a a challenge, but I think it's a really important challenge that we need to address as uh, epidemiologists. So uh, one last topic here. Um, uh, this so on this week in virology, um, Anthony Fauci appeared and was there. I, I really recommend this episode of this week in virology. It's a podcast. It's easy to find, um, and uh, you can hear Anthony Fauci a little bit more the way that he talks to peers uh, the, when he's not really kind of having to be the Mister Rogers uh, of epidemiology, uh, and he's still crystal clear about everything that he says uh, and. Also, uh, now that you've heard Maria, if you listen to this, you could hear the word sequelae twice in one week. Um, <laughs> so, um, but he he was asked about you know the million dollar question right now, which is uh, reopening schools. Let's hear a little bit of that. I think a fundamental principle should be that to the best of your capability, you should try and get the kids back to school, because what we're seeing is that the the downstream unintended deleterious consequences, ripple effects of kids not being in school can be substantial. Having said that, it varies greatly where you are. So there may be some counties where, heck, send the kids back to school, don't worry about anything. And then there are other areas where there's enough infection, you got to decide either it's not safe to get the kids back to school, or if it is, you've got to do things that mitigate risk. And that could be alternate day classes, morning, afternoon, wearing masks, protecting the vulnerables. But the one thing that's critical, you have to be attentive to and sensitive to 
the safety and the welfare of the children and the teachers. Right, Maria. So schools uh, don't just have children in them. Um, they, they have teachers in them. They have other kinds of support staff, clerical staff, janitorial staff. Uh, they're all sharing the same buildings, the same air systems together. Those children also go home uh, to their parents, maybe to their grandparents. Um, and I'm always a little puzzled when people talk about school children uh, as, as a group that's very unlikely to, to, to be symptomatic of the disease, as though children, you know, live the rest of their hours of their lives on some island where they never encountered anybody else, plus <laughs> this adult population that's at the school anyway. So as you look at this, I mean, this is a real tough needle to thread. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you that it's a very challenging question. And just like Dr. Fauci said, you know, there's a clear cost benefit to having, you know, just you know, having to decide whether children need to be in school or not, because children get so much benefit out of physically being in school. And many children get support services that they um, at school that they might not be able to get or might not be able to get in the same way at home. And I think that's really, really important to remember because um, those disparities that we might see um, in education and in public health um, are gonna be exacerbated. By, um, by children sort of not being able to access those services. So I think that's really, really important to remember. Um, so the incentives to get children back to school are high, but I agree, um, of course, it's not just about um, their safety and it's not just about um, what sort of might be like convenient. It's also about the safety of the adults working at the school and of course the adults that take care of them, whether they might be parents or grandparents or other sort of adults. But it's also about what's happening in the community. Um, as Dr. Fauci said, you know, there might be some counties where it's okay, you know, just go back to school. And there might be other counties where um, it's, it's absolutely uh, not possible to do that in such a simple way. So we really need to think maybe past the one size fits all approach and consider like what is best for our communities and then what's best for the individuals in those communities. How best can we support them as we sort of move through this? Right. And to make that discernment, of course, you have to do a lot of testing. So we're right back to where we <laughs> began. Uh, yeah. I mean, you really need to test a lot to know which kind of community you're living in. And uh, and uh, I don't think that we have that information very reliably. But we have been uh, very, very lucky uh, to have this conversation uh, here today. Uh, and we do thank you very much, uh, Maria Sandaram, infectious okay. disease epidemiologist, postdoc fellow uh, at ICES in Toronto, regular contributor to BBC OS. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much for having me. All right. You were great. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk polling. One of my, I, I'm less well-informed on polling than I think I've ever been because there's like so much other stuff to geek out about. But we need to talk about polling. I talk to my neighbor, but we don't get too close. It's them things we can't see. All right. If you listen to the show much, you know, I love polls uh, and I love to look at polls and I like to, you know, you have to think about polls more like a chicken 
a cooked chicken than a cooked steak. Like, you know, when you have big roast chicken, you, you have to sort of pull the whole chicken apart and pick around at, you know, various parts of it, maybe even like get the, in between its ribs and get that rib meat out. That's sort of the way polls are, too. People tend to look at some big blaring headline showing a 15-point lead. You really want to know way more than that, and you want to know about the screens that were used uh, to establish who was, uh, was going to be able to, to respond to the poll, all that kind of stuff. And I want to confess that because of all the other stuff we're dealing with right now, I haven't done that as much as I usually do. Fortunately, Stephen Shepard is with us, and he does. Uh, Stephen Shepard is Politico Magazine's senior campaign and elections uh, editor and chief polling analyst. Uh, and he's with us now to talk about some of the most recent polls in the presidential race. Welcome to our show, Steve Shepard. Thanks for having me. So, you know, we've seen a couple of of you know, very dramatic national polls. Uh, I think uh, Quinnipiac and then Washington Post ABC had these, you know, 15 point leads. Although, uh, once again, to, to the original point there, I mean, you kind of want to look at the screens uh, there. I think it was just registered voters uh, for at least one of those 15 point leads. It feels like if you look at everything, there's, you know, it's like an eight to 11 point Biden lead right now. But what more can you say about that? Well, I think that's I think that's right. Um... It does matter uh, whom pollsters are talking to. First of all, all these polls that you mentioned are being conducted nationwide. As we know, that is not the way we elect a president. Uh, the Electoral College was uh, something that proved to be an advantage for President Trump in 2016. He was able to parlay kind of narrow victories in those three upper Midwestern states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, to propel him to victory despite losing the national popular vote by two points. Obviously, if we're talking about a Joe Biden lead in the popular vote between eight and 11 points, that's not the kind of thing based on the way the Electoral College is set up that President Trump could overcome if that were the result on Election Day. Uh, it also matters um, whom you talk to uh, in terms of the, the composition of your voters. So uh, the ABC News Washington Post poll is a great example. They uh, interview to start with everyone who says that they're registered to vote. And among that group of people, Joe Biden has a 15 point lead over Donald Trump. Among those who are certain to vote, say not only are they registered, but they are certain to vote. I think that lead was down to 11 points. Among those who were certain to vote and said they voted in 2016, it was saved seven or eight points. Um, among the Washington Post's model for determining who's a likely voter, it was a 10-point lead for Joe Biden. So these are some differences that, look, we're talking about these large leads right now where uh, it's a question of degree of a Joe Biden victory. But if the race were to tighten closer to what we saw in 2016, these sorts of choices the pollsters are making and the different results they re are reporting uh, are going to be important. And so it, it, I'm glad that you're taking the time on your show uh, to talk about some of these uh, important tools that pollsters have uh, that maybe uh, consumer, even, even hyper aware consumers of political news might not be aware of. Right. And so, uh, you know, we should talk a little bit about state polls. I mean, one of the reasons uh, I think ultimately when we did the autopsy in 2016, that things were not as perfectly understood uh, as they could have been is that 
not just that people didn't pay attention to state polls, but some of the states were underpolled too. They just there wasn't really enough really good data to look at, say maybe a Wisconsin or something. But right now, if you're looking at these swing states that you're talking about that determine electoral college votes, wow, Colorado, New Mexico, Maine, Virginia, Minnesota, Michigan, you know, all of those have they show the kinds of really kind of leads on average that mirror the kind of average national lead that you were just talking about. I mean, it might be a, a mistake to generalize from one to the other, but there's a way in which there's this kind of, you know, steady eight to 11 point heartbeat, even coming out of, out of swing states. No, I think that's right. Uh, I, the state polling to the extent we have it, and, and you're absolutely right in 2016, uh, there weren't enough state polls. And I would argue so far in 2020, I'm not seeing the kind of uptick that that's going to give me confidence uh, going into election day uh, that we've got the state by state picture nailed down. Um, but the, the polls that we do have are consistent with what we're seeing nationally. And the reality is, is that if Joe Biden were to win this election by 10 points, which is a margin we haven't seen in, in decades uh, at the presidential level. And so there, that's that's one reason to believe that things might tighten from here. But if that were to happen, I think you'd see the states that we consider perennial battlegrounds uh, would all tilt in his direction. Um, and then states that have been pretty close to solidly Republican, or at least certainly had a, de a defined Republican lean in recent elections, uh, would become super competitive at that point. So you kind of have to shift your window for what's competitive over to match the national environment. So another term that people are encountering, uh, we encounter it uh, every cycle, is the so-called enthusiasm gap or just enthusiasm numbers in general. So that's kind of strength sentiment, strength of sentiment uh, among probable voters for either candidate. And at least on the surface, um, people are more people who are willing to vote for Donald Trump will do so more enthusiastically than will people who are voting for Biden. But what more can we say if we dig into that a little bit? Well, that's absolutely right. President Trump's voters are more enthusiastic about President Trump and voting for him than Joe Biden's voters are about uh, voting for Joe Biden. But the one thing that I that I think gets lost when we talk about this is we think then Republican voters are more enthusiastic about voting than Democratic voters. And the data doesn't bear that out. Uh, the data just bears out that it is Trump's voters who are enthusiastic about him uh, versus those who are not. So um, take the ABC News Washington Post poll that we mentioned, a 15-point lead for Joe Biden among registered voters, but 94% of Donald Trump's voters say they're enthusiastic about supporting him. That drops to about 70% among Joe Biden's voters. But if we look at other data, um, for example, there was a Fox News poll also out yesterday asked how motivated you feel about voting. Again, taking putting those candidates aside, and 72% of Democratic voters say they're extremely motivated, 69% of Republican voters. How important is it to you that the candidate you're supporting wins the election? On that measure, 76% of Democrats say it's extremely important. Only 67% of Republicans say it's extremely important. So Trump voters are enthusiastic about him. He's a, obviously a, a big personality. Uh, and Joe Biden was uh, someone who had to come back to win the Democratic nomination, may not inspire a lot of enthusiasm about him. But I think what it boils down to is Democratic voters are really enthusiastic. They're really enthusiastic to vote against Donald Trump, President Trump. 
and they're not necessarily that enthusiastic about Joe Biden, but, you know, a, a negatively negative partisanship, a, 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 a kind of anger, a vote cast in that way counts just the same as a vote ca- cast enthusiastically for a candidate. Exactly. And I do think the failure to me- measure ne- negative enthusiasm would be a mistake. It kind of has been a mistake in the past, too. In fact, not nobody pays any attention to anything I say, but I'm going to say it again anyway. One of my the legacies I've tried to leave leave to the world uh, of polling is what I call the NUAC, the NUAC, and that stands for not under any circumstances. So that's like the people who and I started thinking about it in 2008 when there were just people who couldn't vote for Sarah Palin. There's just nothing on earth uh, could get them to do that. Um, I we I've seen it with other state elections around here, but you know I think in 2016 the Failure to measure the new act for Hillary Clinton was one of the things that distorted our understanding of what's happening because there were people who couldn't vote for her even after something as damning as the Access Hollywood tape, which would ordinarily be a deal breaker, you know, would be a dirt shoveler uh, in any kind of normal electoral environment, except there were people so radically opposed to her that nothing could tip them in that direction. And, you know, that's an, I think that's a very solid number with Donald Trump. There are now people who cannot vote for him under any circumstances. Yeah, an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll out last week found 50% of voters said uh, they wouldn't vote for President Trump under any circumstances. That number for Joe Biden was only 37%. So there's that gap that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, President Trump was historically unpopular even in the 2016 election, but he was change and a shakeup for those who wanted, for those voters who wanted to send a message to Washington. He represented that. Um, I, I think when you look at whether it's his approval rating, whether you look at that that number of, of voters who won't consider voting for him under any circumstances, uh, I think that this is a much bigger problem for him as an incumbent president than it was for him, even as a, a deeply unpopular challenger, uh, you know, from the out party in 2016. And and that's going to be very difficult to overcome. Quick last question, and we'll let you go do your actual job. Um, So uh, one of the other things that was talked about a lot in 2016 is some version of what used to be called the Bradley effect. I think it's called something else now. But these are voters who are planning to do one thing that they are not comfortable admitting to the the pollster who's talking to them. So uh, they are going to vote for Donald Trump, but they just, uh, for one reason or other, don't feel like sharing that uh, piece of information. And so you you get distorted numbers. It would be weird. I mean, we live in weird times. It would be weird for that to happen about an incumbent president. (laughs) Like I can understand being kind of embarrassed or secretive about voting for this weird outlier challenger, you know, with very strange policy positions. But it seems to me you'd be less likely to have that kind of reticence with somebody who served in office in the White House uh, for more than three years. I don't what's your what's your thought about this theory that there are still people not being honest about this? So, yeah, no, uh, pollsters call that, uh, particularly in, in this circumstance, sort of a shy Trump theory. Are you too, are you shy about admitting that to pollsters, especially polls that are conducted by live telephone interviewers? Uh, more broadly, that's known as social desirability bias. Uh, the idea that people want to give, people end up giving the answer uh, that they believe is more socially desirable, even if it's not what they actually believe or what they intend to do in this case, when you talk about vote intention. Um, I'm a little skeptical of it for, for a number of reasons. One, you mentioned that uh, Donald Trump is the incumbent president. 
Uh, two, just that number I gave you a short while ago, 94% of Trump supporters are enthusiastic about voting for him. Uh, you know, the president's campaign is fond of talking about the enthusiasm for him, the crowds at, at his rallies, which of course are on hold now, but the, the crowds at his rallies, even the parades of boats that we're seeing uh, in some parts of the country, flying Trump flags from their masts. Uh, all of that is not consistent with someone that you would be ashamed to vote for and you wouldn't want to admit that you were voting for to pollsters. So I'm a little skeptical that that would be enough. And certainly in a, in a circumstance where Joe Biden has a lead of near 10 points, I, I can't see that being enough. But again, something to watch if the race does tighten as we move into the fall. All right. Stephen Shepard is the Politico magazine senior campaign and elections editor uh, and chief polling analyst. Uh, thank you so much for sparing time on what is no doubt a busy day. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to finish up with something, well, it's not less weighty. In fact, uh, like so many other things, species, we depend more on moths. We need them more than we're willing to admit. And the producer of this episode was Betsy Kaplan, who went to high school in the 1970s, which is why you hear Jackson Brown songs at the ends of segments. Also because they, they fit, too. Also, that's another reason. Uh, anyway, she's producing this episode, and Cat uh, Pastor is there in the studio, making it possible for the rest of us to work remotely and keeping everything humming and playing those Jackson Brown songs when they come up on the schedule. Uh, so, uh, not that that's what we do mainly. Uh, so anyway, we've got lots of other interesting shows planned for you this week. Stay with us uh, all week long. That's my way of saying I can't remember any of them right now. Um, so, uh, yes, it is. It is National Moth Week. Uh, you probably knew that, uh, although you might not have gotten your shopping done uh, yet. Uh, the main thing you probably need to shop for is a big white sheet and then a big bright light so you can look at moths. But here to tell you more about that is Aliti Haramati, uh, founding member of, of Friends of East Brunswick Environmental Commission and vice chair of the East Brunswick Environmental Commission, but very importantly, co-founder of National Moth Week uh, and a researcher at the Department of Marine and Coastal Sciences at Rutgers University. Welcome to our show. So happy to be here, and I'm so grateful you're giving me an opportunity to talk about my favorite creatures. <laughs> so yes, we're doing a salute to moths right now. So the, the first thing to say about moths is there are an awful lot of them. And very specifically, there's an incredible species diversity here. I mean, much more so than the perhaps over glamorized butterfly. Uh, tell us about that. So, you know, we all love butterflies and we love to see them and see pictures of them and take pictures of them. And they're easy to spot because they're flying out there during the day. Um, however, the um, very related group of moths, there is at least 10 times more species. And a lot, a lot of them are as beautiful or more beautiful than butterflies. And they're very important to the ecology and the ecosystem. But most of them fly at night, so we tend not to see them. 
Right. Well, we can see them. We just have to make a special effort. Um, yes. So, um, I mean, the nice thing, as you have pointed out in other contexts, is in terms of seeing them, is that almost anything else, you have to go out into the field with your binoculars. If you're going to be a bird watcher, you, you know, you have to go find the go to where the birds are. Uh, if you're going to be even a butterfly watcher, you're going to have to go to where the butterflies are. Moths are pretty good about just you coming to you, right? All you need to do is turn on a light outside. I mean, I've been joking for a long time that we need to have the official National Moth Week chair because all you need to do is sit on a chair and wait for them to come to the light. Um, or you can turn it into an aerobic activity if you prefer. But yes, you, your options are boundless. So, you know, looking at these uh, on the website uh, and just kind of tr browsing around from there, I am really just struck by the beauty of these animals. I mean, I think most people, you say moth and they think of some white or beige thing that ideally is not flying out of their closet or bureau drawer right now. But these, I don't know if you want to mention one or two that people could even just Google, Google and take a look at the colors and design of these things. Yeah, just if you Google I.O. moth, it's just the letters I.O. Uh, and you'll see the beautiful bright yellow and eye spots uh, moth that's actually native to our area. It's, it, it flies around. It's, it's quite common in the Northeast. Um, and it's a member of the silk moth family, which most of them are, are big and beautiful. Uh, most impressive moth I ever had in my backyard was an imperial moth, and you should Google that too, uh, which is also a bright yellow and almost the size of the palm of your hand. Um, so really, all you have to do is go out, look at the light. And also some of the, the little, what we call, you know, the boring looking ones, if you look closely, they have beautiful patterns on the wings. Yes. And uh, and I just have to say that there's very, very few species that are pests. There are very few species that actually cause damage. Right. Uh, most of, some of, most them, of them are very... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, there's at least some species that don't even eat at all in their lifetimes as moths, right? There are some species where all the eating they do, they do in the earlier stage, and then they become moths. And I think there's at least one kind of moth that doesn't even have a mouth. There's a whole group. Those moths I just mentioned, the silk moths, they they're start as, uh, as caterpillars. They, they eat and eat and eat, and they grow to be very big caterpillars. Uh, and then from what emerges from the cocoon is, uh, is this beautiful, large moths that don't, don't even have mouth parts. Right. They just live to reproduce and they, they live for, they fly around for a few days and they lay eggs and that's it. Right. Warren Beatty was basically the same way. So, um, the other thing to say about moths is, you know, their evolutions with so many different species, they've evolved in all kinds of different ways. They've evolved uh, in ways that help them avoid predation too, right? I mean, they're, they're moths that l look like things other than moths, uh, things that a predator would be less likely to eat. But maybe you want to say a little bit more about some of the kind of fascinating adaptations they've made. Yeah, so um, let's start with what you started with is just the patterns on the wings and, and the body shape, which can either mimic a insect or another animal that a predator wouldn't want to eat. So they can look like wasps or bees. Uh, the IO moth, again, has this, this very large eye spots. And if you're a predator and you just see it, it opens up the wings. And what you see is two big eyes that must belong to something big and scary. Um, 
Other ways of avoiding predation is uh, some moths emit a sound that confuses bats. So bats um, prey by, by emitting um, very high frequency sound waves and they can find their, um, their food, their prey um, from the sounds that come back. And some moth species develop a system where they emit a sound that interferes with those sound waves. So the evolution is amazing. The, the ways to avoid predators, unbelievable. And the same thing goes for the caterpillars because a lot of birds eat the caterpillars. And they also can have either toxic chemicals in their body that either are just not tasty or even really poisonous to the birds. And some of them just has the very colorful, bright patterns um, that signals, don't eat me. <laughs> so um, fortunately, I think um, a lot of them do get eaten because we want them to get eaten because, in fact, they're a huge part of the ecosystem. We need bats. We need birds. Birds and bats got to eat. Uh, they, they do eat a lot of moths, right? Absolutely. They're a very important food source. And very quickly, we should also mention, because people don't think of them this way, uh, they're also pollinators, right? Maybe you could just quick, quickly say something about that. Yes, we always, you know, we talk about the bees as pollinators. We worry about, we worry about the well-being of the bees. But moths are very important pollinators as well. There's actually um, groups of moths that are day-flying and they're pollinators. Uh, those are the sphinx moths or the hawk moths. But also uh, a lot of the ones that fly at night pollinate flowers at night. And there's many species of plants with flowers that are white and open at night. And they co-evolve with their pollinators that are moths. All right. So we've been talking to Lidi Haramati, who is uh, one of the co-founders of National Moth Week. You can look uh, up some of the supporting materials on the website. On our website at WNPR.org, we will actually have a photo for you of the IO moth with its uh, beautiful uh, markings and th those two spots that do look very much like eyes. But other than that, uh, celebrate uh, Mo National Moth Week in your own personal way. If there weren't a pandemic, I would tell you to hug a Lepidopterist, but don't do that. Um, but uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Lydia as well. Uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kat for pulling the show together. We're going to be with you all week long, uh, but thanks for listening today. <laughs>